morning, New Life Church, and to all of our friends that have logged on this morning. We're grateful that you are worshiping with us. And uh, even though it's still online, we are looking forward to the day where we can get together uh, permanently on a Friday, and we're praying that would happen soon. So for the last few months, we have been going through the book of Acts, and uh, we have subtitled that The Gospel in Motion, as we've seen how the gospel started its roots there in Jerusalem and start spreading to the uttermost parts of the earth. And last week, we looked at Stephen, the first of the prototype deacons in chapter 6. We saw Stephen the man and his godly characteristics that made him so courageous in his witness for Christ, despite the, the difficult situations that he was facing. And today we will study the message of Stephen. We still continue to look at this fascinating example that has been recorded for us in the Scriptures. And then next week we will consider Stephen the martyr in chapter 7 and in chapter 8. But today we have a long portion from verse 1 to verse 53. I won't be reading all of those verses, but we will be going through the passage together and expounding the passage as we look at um, key verses. So why don't you pray with me this morning as we go into the Word and ask for God's blessings upon it. Father, we ask please that you would teach us this morning. Lord, this can seem like a difficult subject for many people to um, accept, but also to understand as Stephen preaches a message that will ultimately get him um, stoned and killed. We know, Lord, you have a purpose for every single one of us, and it may not be um, being martyrs, but we know, Father, we are to be faithful, and we are to be obedient, and we are to be proclaiming Christ until he returns. So we pray, Lord, please teach us. Help us to learn from the example of Stephen. Help us to learn even from this, this very, very unique sermon that he preaches as well. Important, Lord, for us to understand so that we may be able to articulate the gospel to others. So we pray for your help now. We pray that you would be blessed and glorified and honored in our response. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So there is a Chinese proverb that says, if you want to know what water is like, don't ask a fish. And the meaning is that being a fish that has lived in water its, its whole life, it has no common point of reference with anything else, even us, to explain exactly what water is like. To us, water is, is wet, maybe it's cold, uh, we can't breathe in water, uh, we know water is life-giving, but potentially life-taking as well. But to the fish... Everything he knows is about water. Does he consider water to be wet? I don't think so. Um, a fish is so intimately acquainted with water, it knows all about it, but it can't really explain what water is to someone else. Not that a fish ever would. We're just talking hypothetically here. But imagine you were a visitor to Jerusalem during the times of the apostles. And if you wanted to know the real state of the 
religious affairs in Jerusalem or the religious condition in Jerusalem at that time, then it probably wouldn't have been a good idea to go to the Sanhedrin or the Pharisees to ask them. The Sanhedrin in our passage, which we see this morning, were like the fish in water. We know they had rejected Jesus Christ. They had rejected his resurrection. And as a result, they were just blindly following their own ritualistic cultural religion. And Stephen, as a, as a Jewish Christian, obviously saw the current religious situation very differently um, than the Hebrew Jews did in Jerusalem at that time. And Stephen understood how important the church of Jesus Christ was. Stephen knew that the temple was no longer where God dwelt, but that he dwelt in believers. He saw it very differently. Stephen could see clearly that to follow Christ would mean a complete separation from the, the temple and all of its liturgies and all of its laws. He could see very clearly as an, as an outsider that the days of Jerusalem were numbered. And we know from the content of his sermon, which we're going to look at this morning, that Stephen had a firm grasp that God, who saves his people from their sins, is not, is not confined to a particular building or confined to a particular piece of land. Stephen knew that ultimately, to be a God follower, a disciple of Jesus Christ, was not about the place. It was about a personal relationship with him. And it was precisely this truth that Stephen knew and understood that made the Sanhedrin very angry with him. So as we study Stephen's sermon in this chapter, I'm going to try and unearth his main points. And as we do so, I trust that we will examine our own lives to see if perhaps we are not also guilty at times of being like the, the fish in the water. We may be acquainted with Christianity. We may be acquainted with the gospel. We may have heard it many times. But can we really explain it to others? Can we explain it to someone else who doesn't know what the gospel is or may have never heard it before? Are we sometimes guilty of missing the main points of Christianity and the gospel of Jesus Christ in our own context because of our cultural heritage? But first we look at the explanation of Stephen's message. Then we'll look at some of the application for us this morning. So rather than working through the message in detail, which would take far more time than I have this morning... I want to show you three dominant themes that are, that are woven throughout this, this message together. And my first point this morning is God's sovereign, abundant grace. We see Israel's history reveals God's sovereign, abundant grace. And Stephen demonstrates clearly that it's God who is sovereign. God is the one who initiates the process of calling out a, a people for his name, and that he continues to pour out his grace on these people in spite of their own rebellion. And he began by 
calling Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Look at verse 2. It tells us, before Abraham lived in Haran. So Stephen refers to God as the, the God of glory in this verse, showing his majesty and his separateness from sinful humanity. We know Abraham in the beginning was a pagan idolater. He was living in a pagan culture. He had no merit of his own in him for God to appear to him and, and make a covenant with him. So why did God not call Abraham's entire family? Or, or why did he not tell Abraham to reach out to the cities of Ur or Haran rather than to make the long journey to the land of Canaan? We don't really know. All we know is that God sovereignly chose Abraham and poured out his grace on him. Look at verse 4. God's sovereignty is further emphasized here where Stephen states that God removed Abraham into, his, into this land. The nation of Israel owed its existence to God's gracious promise to make a great nation out of Abraham's descendants and to give them the land of Canaan. So some facts here that Stephen is, is identifying with, with the Sanhedrin here. And also God's hand was on Joseph. We know about that. In spite of the wickedness of his brothers in selling him into slavery, God sovereignly used the famine in Canaan to get Jacob and all of his descendants into Egypt where Joseph cared for their, their needs. And God's sovereignty and God's grace are seen in the way that he protected the young nation during the 400 years in Egypt in spite of their trials. Look at verse 17 through to verse 20. When the time of God's promise to Abraham drew near, it says in verse 17, he sovereignly raised up Moses, who is the only baby in the Bible to be called beautiful. We see that in verse 20. But as Stephen notes here, Moses was born at the very time that Pharaoh decreed the death of the, the Jewish infants. We see there in verse 19 and 20. So why would God do that? Why would God do that? One commentator, he says, it was to show that the time is most fit for God to work in when there is no hope or counsel to be looked for at man's hands. I think that is a very fair assessment. Again, we are focusing on here. Stephen is wanting us to see God's sovereign grace. How he protected Moses through Pharaoh's daughter and provided him with an education in all of the, the learning of the Egyptians so that he was a man of power and a man of deeds, as we see in verse 22. But in spite of his learning and power, we know that the people of Israel, they did not at first accept Moses as their deliverer. We know that he had to flee for his life and spend 40 years in the wilderness of Midian. And Stephen's sermon is the only place in the Bible that we learn that Moses was about 40 when he had to flee to Midian. And that he spent 40 years there as well. 
And then God again sovereignly appeared to Moses in the burning bush and promised to use him to deliver Israel from slavery. We see that from verse 35 to verse 37. This Moses whom they rejected saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. So Stephen makes the point that it was the same Moses whom Israel had at first rejected that God sent to deliver the nation. It was the same Moses who predicted that God would raise up another prophet after him. We see that in verse 37. And Stephen is not so subtly implying that Jesus is this prophet, that Jesus is this one that was um, prophesied about, that was rejected as well the first time. But in spite of God's sovereign, abundant grace, Israel rebelled against God and against his servant Moses in the wilderness. They turned their back to Egypt in their, in their hearts. They wanted to go back to Egypt and they wanted to worship the, the golden calf. And Stephen is reminding them of history here, of truth. God gave the nation up to their idolatry, so they later, they worshipped the false gods of Canaan. We see that in verse 42 to verse 43. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? So even in His grace, even in God's Sovereign grace. God had given them the tabernacle. He had given them the temple. He had given them Jerusalem as the place where he met with them. Although as Stephen reminds them, and he quotes Isaiah chapter 66, he reminds them that God is not bound by a, a man-made dwelling. God is not bound by a a plot of land. Because God made everything. He owns everything. So all through his message here, Stephen is emphasizing God's sovereign, abundant grace that was shown to the, the nation of Israel in spite, in spite of her repeated sins. The second thing we see in this message is that Israel rejected God's grace. Israel rejected God's grace. Israel's history, as, as is clearly shown to us here, reveals their own stubborn, rebellious propensity to reject God's gracious dealings with them. But note the repeated pattern of this rejection, the, the deliverer's they were rejecting the deliverers whom God had sent them. Look at verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. We know at first they wickedly rejected him, but later they found him to be their savior who was willing to help them from the salvation from the, the famine. Israel was in slavery in Egypt. They at first rejected Moses as their deliverer. Look at verse 35. 
But later, it was this very man whom God raised up to be both ruler and deliverer. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. So we see the parallel here. As Stephen is contrasting Moses with, with Joseph, the parallel of these wicked men to whom Stephen is speaking to is clearly obvious. These men had rejected the very one whom God had sent as Messiah and Savior. And yet like Joseph's brothers and like Israel under Moses, God again was offering them another chance to repent and to follow Jesus. And the third theme that we see here in this message that they were limiting worship to a sacred place. And again, we see Israel's history in this sermon reveals their, their pattern of limiting worship to a sacred place. Rather than to a sacred person who made that place. The Jews in Stephen's day were fiercely loyal to the land, to Jerusalem and to the temple as the only place where they were to worship God. We know proselytes from all over the world had to come to Jerusalem to worship God in the temple. But throughout his message, Stephen is repeatedly reminding them, showing them that God historically had revealed himself to his servants, not in Israel, not in Jerusalem, but in Gentile territory. Away from the temple. He called Abraham, not in Israel, but in the land of Mesopotamia. Look at verse 5. He did not give Abraham any inheritance in the land, not even a foot of ground. God predicted to Abraham that his descendants would inherit the land. We see that in verse 6. But not until they were enslaved in the, and mistreated in a foreign land for about 400 years. And then in verse 33, God reveals himself to Moses in the foreign land of Midian through the burning bush. We see then the Lord says to him, take off the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. That wasn't Jerusalem. That was in Midian. That ground was holy, not because it had a nice building around it, but because that is where God was. Their shoes had to be removed because that was where God was. God made it holy, not a building, not a people. God was with Moses and in the nation, in the wilderness, outside of the land. And God spoke directly to Moses in Mount Sinai, not in Jerusalem. Look at verse 38. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers, he received living oracles to give to us. Living oracles. By calling the law, and that's what he's doing here in this verse, a living oracle, Stephen is showing that the charge against him, speaking untruth, was fabricated. It was a lie. 
the charge of him speaking against the law was not true. He loved God's law. He reverenced God's law. He saw God's law as a living oracle. It was the rebellious nation that had repeatedly despised this living oracle, this word of God. They were the ones who were guilty of breaking the law. Stephen brings up the tabernacle here, and he brings up the temple. He doesn't talk about it at length. Look at verse 44 to verse 50. He references the temple in verse 47. And he quotes from Isaiah in verse 48 to verse 50. And Stephen is not despising the temple here, as we see in these verses. But he is challenging the mindset that the Jews had towards the temple. Look at verse 46. Who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob? But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. We see here, they boasted in the temple. The Israelites, the Sanhedrin. They boasted in the temple as if it gave them a special access to God in spite of their wicked behavior, in spite of their hypocrisy. And Stephen here is challenging their mindset. He's challenging the mindset that the Jews had towards the, the temple. And Stephen is showing him that the main issue is not the place where they worshipped, but rather having their hearts right before the person of the Holy Creator. And the Jews... In Jeremiah's day, had even done the same thing. And through the prophet, God said in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 9 to 10, Will you still murder and commit adultery and swear falsely and offer sacrifices to Baal and walk after other gods that you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say we are delivered that you may do all these abominations? But this wasn't a unique um, occurrence just with the Sanhedrin. This happened in the days of the prophet Jeremiah as well. It was a constant struggle that Israel had. They kept on focusing on the place and not the person who is the creator of this world. They thought that having the temple gave them special privileges with God, no matter how corrupt their behavior was. Stephen really here is indicting the Jews in his day with the same charge. They thought that worship at the temple gave them a place of special privilege. They thought it gave them a place of special blessing. Even though their hearts were wicked. And even though their hearts were far from God. Look at verse 41. There's a, re a repetition here. In his sermon he uses the word hands quite often and they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to their idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands underline the word hands or make a circle around it every time you see it in the sermon it's, it's repeated and he, he he does it again to show us how here in this incident of the golden calf israel rejoiced in their work 
the work performed by their, their very hands. And in verse 48, we see Stephen declares, However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. In verse 50, through Isaiah, God declares, Was it not my hand which made all these things? Was it not my hand that made all these things? So Stephen's point is, men can build things. I mean, we just need to walk around outside and go to the city and go to Dubai and see all the, the things that man can build with their hands. They can even build temples that they think God dwells in. But the Most High God and the Creator of this universe is not limited is not limited to man-made objects. Whether we worship in a, in a beautiful temple or at a burning bush in the wilderness, we must reckon with His holy presence by cleansing our hearts from all idolatry and wickedness. It is possible to go through the motions. It is possible to go to these beautiful religious structures and not worship the creator of this world. We can be so impressed with the externals. We can even be impressed by our, our religious rituals and liturgy and go through the motions. But it is possible to have stiff necks just like these Jews did. We see in verse 51, we see in verse 53, it is possible to boast in our knowledge of God's word, but not obey it. While much more could be said, Stephen's message reveals these main dominant themes here in our passage. God's sovereign grace is abundantly shown to rebellious sinners, but we must take Heed to the danger of hardening our hearts against His grace. Even though Israel had a history of spiritual privilege, unlike any nation on earth, she rejected her Savior and brought about God's judgment upon herself. The temple that she boasted in was destroyed in AD 70, never to be rebuilt even to this day. We know Israel was scattered among the nations for 19 centuries. So how can we apply this sermon to ourselves today in our current situation? I want to spend the rest of our time looking at a few applications from Stephen's message this morning. My first application is, we should rejoice in, and proclaim God's abundant mercy toward hardened sinners. Rejoice and proclaim. Rejoice and proclaim God's grace and God's mercy to sinners who do not know Him. This is at least the third time that the Sanhedrin, which were responsible for crucifying Jesus, had heard the gospel and they had the opportunity to repent. They heard Peter preach after they arrested him and 
and John in connection with the healing of the lame man in the temple in chapter 4, which we've already seen. And they again heard Peter and the apostles offer them repentance and forgiveness of sins. They had been arrested, miraculously freed, and rearrested in, in chapter 5. Now again, they hear Stephen powerfully preach God's grace and God's dealings with the nation in spite of their rebellion. If God had given these murderers just one chance to repent after crucifying Jesus, that would have been enough. That would have been part of his abundant mercy. But notice, this is the third time, the third opportunity God shows his super abundant grace. All of us who have experienced God's grace, who have experienced God's salvation, know that it was not in spite of, not because of anything in us, but because of Jesus. We all know that we are guilty of rejecting the message of salvation at some point prior our salvation. We all heard the gospel at one point, but we did not submit to it. Like Abraham, if God had not sovereignly called him by his grace, he would have lived and he would have died as a as an unbelieving pagan in a pagan land if it was not for God choosing him. So my question this morning is, do you rejoice daily in God's grace to you? Are you reminded of what Jesus has done for you on a weekly, on a daily basis? Do you remember what Jesus has done for you, the sinner? And if you do, you will want to tell other sinners about his grace toward them. Greg Gilbert, who wrote the small book, What is the Gospel? He says this in his book. He says, if you're a Christian, realize that you hold in your hands the only true message of salvation the world will ever hear. There will never be another gospel. And there is no other way for people to be saved from their sins. If your friends, family, and co-workers are ever to be saved from their sins, it will be because someone speaks the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. Remember, he goes on to say, remember what the grace of God has done in your own life and imagine what he could do in their lives. Take a deep breath, pray for God's spirit to work, and open your mouth and speak. Last night we had a wonderful time of communion celebrating the gospel, remembering what Jesus has done for us. But here's the danger, folks. We could be just like the Sanhedrin. We can think, oh, what a wonderful time it was during communion. We can be, be awed by the, the structure of the building. We can be awed by the, the, the process that we went through, the procedure that we went through. We can be awed by the songs that we sang we can be awed by all of the, the atmosphere that we enjoyed. And yet, we can leave that building not willing to proclaim the death of Christ until he comes. Not willing to share the gospel with others. Remember what the grace of God has done in your own life. And open your mouth and speak. 
The second application that we can learn here from Stephen's message that we should guard against presuming on God's grace. Guard against presuming on God's grace. And we do that by falling into sin, isn't it? We do that by enjoying sin rather than enjoying Christ. Paul, the Apostle Paul tells us that Israel's history should be a, a warning to us not to crave evil things as they, as they did nor to be idolaters as they were, nor to act immorally, nor to try the Lord, nor to grumble as they did. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, as Paul writes to the Christian church. It's a terrible misunderstanding and misapplication of God's grace to presume that we can go on sinning and just keep on claiming His grace. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. The King James says, God forbid. That's not the point of grace. That's not why we have been given grace, so that we can continue in our sins. We read in Jude chapter 4, the warning about Ungodly people who turn the grace of God into licentious and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. We read in Titus chapter 2 verse 11 and 12. Paul showing us the proper response to God's grace. And he says in those verses that it instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly Righteous and godly in the present age. Are we fighting sin? I think one of the, the big battles that we've had to face during COVID is spiritual laziness. People saying, oh well, it's because of my quarantine. God will understand. No problem if I, if I do this or if I do that. Or if I don't do this, or if I don't do that. We tend to make excuses for our sin. God will understand. God is gracious. God will forgive me. Let me continue in my sin. It's just because of this situation. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing it. And we don't deny ungodliness. We don't deny worldly desires. And we don't live sensibly and righteously in the face of our Creator. Let's not fall into the trap of the Israelites, folks. They made plenty of excuses. They did not guard themselves against presuming on God's grace. The third application here that we can learn from God against going through the motions. God against going through the outward motions of worship when our hearts are far away from God. Remember, Israel was God's chosen nation. They had the covenant promises. They had been shown his pattern of worship given to Moses in Mount Sinai, in the tabernacle where his glory was shown, and in the temple in all of its splendor. But God had this possessed the pagan nations 
and given Israel this unique opportunity with the land. And they had received the law as ordained by Moses. Yet in spite of all of these privileges, their hearts were far from God. They had a history of killing the prophets that God had sent them. And we know it culminated in the very killing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We can be like Israel. Like Israel, we have had spiritual privileges. We come from different countries where we have freely heard the gospel being preached and where we have had biblical principles that we have had to abide by, even if it wasn't a Christian country. We live in a unique time where the gospel has affected culture. We have had the Bible in our own language that we've been able to read. We've had the Bible translated into different languages for other unreached groups to read. We've had great spiritual opportunities. Even where we are today, we have the freedom to worship without persecution. Think of our friends in Afghanistan, our brothers and sisters in Christ in Afghanistan today. Not enjoying that spiritual privilege. Not being able to worship and gather together without persecution. And yet it is so easy for, for us, isn't it, to fall into the, the trap of going through the outward motions of Christianity. Not walking in faith, not walking in the reality of the, the living God. You know, the TEC is not where God lives, folks. The zoo is not where God lives. And we hope we can gather again soon, maybe in a hotel. That's not where God lives. God lives in our bodies. Our bodies are the temple of the living God. And we must walk in holiness before the Lord, beginning in our hearts. And to offer worship to God when we have not repented of our sins is an offense towards Him. Let us not fall into this trap of hypocrisy as we see here displayed in the lives of the Israelites. Well, here's my fourth and last application this morning. We should imitate Stephen by being more concerned about being a witness to the truth. Being a witness to the truth. As I said earlier, Stephen, he defends himself with the sermon. This is really a rebuttal to the accusations that are laid against him. But he shows that he reverenced God. He thought highly of Moses. And he did not speak against the temple or the law. But his main thrust was not to defend himself, but to bring God's truth to bear on the conscience of these hypocrites. He identifies with them repeatedly throughout the sermon. Eight times he refers to our father. Uh, our father, his, uh, our fathers, we see in verse 11, we see in verse 12, we see in verse 15, we see in verse 19, 38, verse 39, verse 44, and verse 45. 
He's identifying with the Jewish people. But he isn't speaking with polite general, general um, possibilities here. He wants to connect with them. He wants them to feel the guilt of their terrible sin of murdering Jesus. And only when they have been convicted in their hearts will they see their need for God's forgiveness and salvation. Why do they need a savior if they haven't sinned? And he's trying to show them their need here. While we should treat each of our friends, our unbelieving friends with grace and, and tact, we should not be so nice focusing on only on, on God's love. We need to call these unbelievers to repentance. We need to help them see their sin and their need for a Savior. One author says it well. We shouldn't take the teeth out of the gospel. It will offend. But without that conviction, people will not come to Christ. They will not call out for the forgiveness of their sins. Often we back off from the hard points of the, the gospel because we want people to like us. We want to be thought well of by our friends, our family members, our unbelieving family members. And we avoid sharing the truth that they have sinned against God. And we have not proclaimed the gospel if we avoid the subject of sin. We have not proclaimed the gospel if we have not talked about the subject of righteousness. We have not spoken the gospel if we avoid the subject of judgment. Let's be faithful with the preaching and the sharing of the gospel. Now, last night I mentioned we partook of the Lord's Supper for the first time in over a year. But even that simple means of grace, that act of holy communion, can become an outward ritual that we, that we just go through without getting our hearts right before God. I think last night was, was a little different though. I mean, before we've had communion once a month, the first Friday of every month. And we tend to have gone through the motions then. We haven't had that for over a year. And last night was a reminder of not to take this for granted. Not to just go through the motions. And Paul warns us as well that we must examine our hearts as we saw in 1 Corinthians 11 last night. Examine our hearts before God and then partake. And I think the reason is that because... We are not very different to the Israelites. We like religion. We like religion. And we can so easily become like the Sanhedrin and substitute the gospel for works, for the works of our hands and the achievements of our hands and the performance in our own power. Stephen looked to God in faith. And he relied on the Holy Spirit for power so that the God of glory, as he refers to in verse 2, would get his glory. 
not Stephen. In the beginning of the sermon, I asked you to examine your own lives to see if perhaps you are not also guilty at times of being like the, the fish in water. Maybe you are acquainted with the gospel. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home. Maybe you've heard the gospel many times. But my question to you this morning is, do you, do you love the gospel? Do you love the gospel? Do you share the gospel with others? Can you explain the gospel to someone else who has never heard it before without watering it down, without taking the teeth out of the gospel message? Perhaps we're sometimes guilty of missing the main point of Christianity. We're guilty of missing the gospel of Jesus Christ because of our own context. Please, this is not just the Sanhedrin are, are guilty of being religious. This can happen to us today. If we truly understand the grace God has shown us in our hearts, we will burn to see that same grace shown to others. Greg Gilbert, again, from his book, What is the Gospel? He says, if you are a Christian, realize that you hold in your hands the only true message of salvation that the world will ever hear. Let that sink in for a moment. Let that concretize in your heart this morning. You hold in your hands the only true message of salvation the world will ever hear. Are we sharing it with others? There will never be another gospel. And there is no other way for people to be saved from their sins but through Jesus Christ. Quoting Greg Gilbert again. If your friends, family and co-workers are ever to be saved from their sins, it will be because someone speaks the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. Remember what the grace of God has done in your life. And imagine what he could do in their lives. Take a deep breath, pray, pray for God's spirit to work, and open your mouth and speak. That is our challenge, my challenge to you this week. Share the gospel, love the gospel, proclaim the gospel until he comes. And pray with me as David did. Search our hearts, O oh God, and know our hearts Try me and know our anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead us in the way everlasting. If there is something that is keeping you from enjoying Christ, if there is something that is keeping you from loving the gospel and you are guilty of just going through the motions and you are guilty of just being religious, then repent of your sins this morning. Don't be like these hypocrites that we see again and again manifested in their religiosity. Religion doesn't say, but never will. It's not about a set of rules, a set of law. It's not about a building. It's not about a plot of land. Christianity is about Jesus Christ. 
And have you submitted to him as the king of your life? Are you bowing the knee to him? Are you obeying him? Are you faithfully proclaiming him to the lost world around you? Father, we thank you for the boldness of Stephen as he proclaimed this wonderful sermon. The longest sermon recorded in the Bible for us. I think it's three times longer than any of the sermons Peter preached. But yet it's here recorded for us in all of its splendor. He knew the truth. He was able to articulate the truth. He identified with his audience. He pleaded with them. He called them to respond. And Lord, that's what you're doing to us this morning. May we not just leave without responding to the challenge this morning. Lord, if we are guilty of going through the motions, if we are guilty of just being religious, please expose that sin to us this morning. May we see clearly, Lord. May we not be blinded by the the motions that we go through when it comes to our services, when it comes to our religion. May our hearts be right with you today, Father. May we be willing to tell others about our love. May we be willing to proclaim the gospel to those who are in need of Christ. We pray for your help this week, Lord. May we not just be hearers of the word. Help us to be doers. In Jesus' name we ask and pray. Amen.